Okay, so this is uh, ENT211. Um, this is 200 level, so you won't see any code samples except for one lifecycle policy. And um, try not to make any assumptions about the things that you know or don't know. Uh, so we'll spend a little bit of time throughout the session going over background. I'm so glad that we came out with all this stuff and I can finally talk about it with somebody. So we're going to start with backups for the hybrid cloud. Why start there? Well, backups are one of those things that everybody does, or at least they should do, but they're often at the tail end of resource planning. So what's going to get the, the money first, right? The shiny new storage array that goes to the production workload or an aging backup infrastructure on its last leg? In most places, it's the production workload. It's the things that make money. Backup doesn't make money, so people don't give it money. But with the cloud, you don't actually need that shiny new storage array. You only pay for what you use. You don't, you don't have to provision anything. Everything's already there. It scales to whatever you need. And the whole time, you're actually simplifying your backup strategy. Since you've simplified your backup strategy, your recovery strategy is simplified too. So you combine all this, and actually, you kind of get to be the hero. You actually get to save the day. You have backups that work. In your career, how many times have you had backups that fail? Almost everybody I know who has had any amount of time in IT has had backups fail. And they don't fail during the backup, they fail during the restore. So when you need those backups, where would you rather have them? In the most durable and scalable object store in the history of humankind? Or on a flimsy magnetic tape, bouncing down the highway in a truck at freeway speeds, on its way to a facility where somebody who doesn't care about your tape is going to maybe mishandle it? I know where I'd rather have my, my data. So that's what it's all about. It's about fulfilling the promise of recovery. So today we're going to touch on all the ways you can back up and restore in a single bound. No cape required. At Amazon, we like to listen to our customers. Customers have taught us to think about cloud storage based on four key elements. File, object, block, and batches and streams. These elements have, you know, they're usually required, actually, all four of them, to make the jump in your cloud storage journey. If you want to have the best chance of success, try to utilize all of them. Customers, they asked for file systems, so we gave them EFS. They didn't just want a file system, though. They wanted something that scaled to petabyte scale. They wanted consistent latencies. So we gave them EFS. It gives you a, a simple interface for EC2 instances. And with an update, now you can use it over DX. So you can actually extend EFS down into your on-premises environment. DX is Direct Connect. Apologies for using acronyms. I won't do that anymore. S3, oh, there I go. And Glacier are object storage. They're the ultimate repositories for durable and cost-effective data storage at scale. S3 is a veritable Swiss army knife. And because it's so simple to use, and because it has such flexible characteristics, it becomes sort of the de facto platform for partner ecosystems. Everything that we're going to talk about as it relates to Amazon, is a building block. But we're also going to talk about some third-party solutions that are part of our partner ecosystem that help fill the gaps between where the building block stops and where customer expectations begin. Glacier has a similar architecture to S3, uh, but it, it caters to long-term archives. The best way to think about Glacier is if it was on tape before, it's okay for it to be on Glacier now. If it wasn't on tape, don't try to stick it on Glacier. We have other ways for you to save money. And this year, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but AWS was estimated by Gartner to have 1.6 times more capacity than all the other cloud-based object stores combined. Um, so I'm, I think it's public knowledge that that's in the EB range. 
so it's quite about quite a bit of storage. Um, and since we have so many users and we have so much storage, we tend to find problems pretty quickly. And uh, S3 is uh, very proud of the fact that they've never lost an object unintentionally. Um, and uh, considering how many trillions of objects are in S3, I think that's really saying something. Uh, EBS, Elastic Block Storage, provides the lowest latency in the portfolio. There's provisioned IOPS and general purpose SSD. Um, these are volume types that can give you high IOPS levels and low latencies. Um, and uh, we also have at the other end of the spectrum very low cost throughput optimized storage volumes. Um, ST, for example, is the instance type that I'm thinking of. Uh, and the idea there is that what people would traditionally do is uh, use meta devices to group things together and stripe things across in software RAID. Well, what we said is let's simplify that. We'll just give you a volume type that gives you the performance characteristics that you need and takes away the complexity of having to worry about multiple volumes. If you don't want block storages, uh, it's what's in your laptop, it's what's on your computers, uh, it's what your uh, fiber channel array presents to you, it's what your iSCSI appliances present to you. All of those things are block storage. Uh, to be honest, most of the volumes in EBS are root volumes. But there are persistent volumes that can be used for more than just root and boot disks. We have lots of people running uh, high performance workloads on EBS, a lot of distributed databases, uh, transactional systems like uh, MySQL, uh, Oracle, SQL Server, um, NoSQL databases like uh, uh, MongoDB, Cassandra. Um, and we have people using uh, EBS for big data even, right? Hadoop nodes um, and Kafka. Uh, and then lastly, uh, data warehousing. People uh, who say, you know, Redshift is awesome, but I want to use my own thing. Then maybe, I, maybe they want to use Vertica. EBS is where all that data is going to go. And the other thing that we've learned from our customers is that organizations need a variety of means to transfer data in and out of the cloud that are still going to provide value. They're still going to provide the customer with the time parameters that they need and meet their workflow demands. We have major new advances with Snowball Edge and Snowmobile that add staging and compute power and they're also moving data at exabyte scale. Just last year, we were talking about moving data at petabyte scale, so I think that's pretty good. But what's common to all these services is that they're actually run by AWS, so that means that there's no need for you to put any upfront money there. There's no investment or commitment. You only pay for what you use. You don't have to perform complex or risky calculations to do capacity planning modeling, and then later figure out that actually the data that the people gave you for your modeling was wrong, and now you're chasing your tail trying to figure out how you're going to come up with all that extra gear. And all of them were designed with the very highest levels of availability and durability and allow you to easily and quickly provision as much as you need without ever hitting capacity problems or bottlenecks. So at one time or another, almost every enterprise backup and recovery scenario looks something like this slide. If you wanted high-performance data archives, it had to live on disk. If you wanted cost-effective archival storage, it had to live on tape. If you wanted to archive off-site, you had to physically deliver your archival tapes to another location. And I might add, it was not in your own truck. Recovery from local disk would usually be fine, unless you needed something from a tape, in which case it might be a while until that tape wasn't on site anymore. So this story changes a bit with the cloud. The first part of the story changes uh, when backup software was given the ability to write to the cloud without any changes to the backup software itself. And this was accomplished by writing all the normal backup data to a cloud gateway. So now there's lots of cloud gateways, but at, at one point in time there was only a couple. Cloud gateways let you uh, take your application without modifying it, and your application now doesn't know how to write to the cloud. 
Cloud gateways let that application have a centralized way to put data up into the cloud or read it from it, but still keep a locally cached version for performance purposes. So the cloud gateway didn't just replace tape libraries with more economical cold storage options like Glacier, it actually replaced the truck too. And now we brought it back. So instead of using fossil fuels to uh, transport your data from point A to point B, commodity internet became the carrier. And today, unless you actually have a massive, massive amount, you know, we're talking um, hundreds of petabytes or exabytes of data, uh, the internet is still a, a great way to do it, um, as well as Snowball and Snowball Edge. We'll talk about those in a bit. So we're gonna cover two uh, gateways. We're gonna cover the AWS storage gateway, and we're also gonna cover the NetApp AltaVault appliance. NetApp AltaVault, by the way, was a steel store uh, by Riverbed before, and that codename was Whitewater. So if you've heard Whitewater or steel store in the past, it's all the same thing. So the second part of the backup and recovery, the second part of the backup and recovery story that changed um, was when backup software makers actually built the ability to write directly to the cloud, directly into the software. So we call those S3 connectors in most cases, or cloud connectors. Most of the market leaders have, uh, enterprise backup suite market leaders, that is, have native cloud connectors now. Um, more than 90% of the market is represented by all the ones that uh, just even in this last year have come out. So we have EMC Networker, um, NetBackup by Veritas, we have Commvault, Simpana, and we also have Tivoli. Um, they rebranded the product to Spectrum Protect, but all four of those have cloud connectors, and they all actually really work well. So if you, if you don't uh, have your data uh, in the cloud yet, today, but you're running any one of those four solutions, uh, we'll go over the version numbers that, that provide access to those, but chances are you actually don't need to do anything. You can just turn on the option. So as the process of, uh, in the process of building relationships with these partners, um, it's taken us a while to do this, but uh, Commvault's actually had support as far back as Simpana 9. So if you're running Simpana 9, 10, or 11, you have cloud connector support. You can put it into S3, you can even put it into Glacier. They use lifecycle policies there. Um, Veritas Net Backup uh, had a cloud connector. They redid it. It's much better now. So if you're running 7.7 or more, uh, like one of the minor releases, you, you have S3 connectivity there. Um, what's great about all of these solutions, by the way, is that you don't have to upgrade everywhere. It's really just the media servers that have the S3 connector. So you upgrade your media servers to those versions, and, and uh, you don't have to upgrade your whole console, for example. Uh, Spectrum Protect, the one that's formerly known as Tivoli, the version is 717. Um, and EMT Networker, um, I, I don't recall, but it's, it's this year, whatever, whatever their major release was this year. So if you have those, you have an easy path to sending your backups to the cloud. In fact, you can really easily uh, turn it on. We'll go over sort of what it looks like. Um, but you don't have to change anything in your infrastructure if you want to use these solutions. So. When we talk to customers about their journey to the cloud, there's a common theme around optimization. A lot of customers start by trying to optimize their on-prem deployments. They're doing this for simplicity purposes and they wanna, they wanna reduce their cost, but it's organic. And before you know it, things have grown and grown. And in the meanwhile, unfortunately, cost has gone up. But also in the meanwhile, cloud cost has gone down. So this cycle repeats itself, and the custom hardware continues to be expensive, perpetuating the problem that you have a custom solution, and the reason it's expensive is unfortunately because it's low volume. There's some durability challenges occasionally. So customers tell us, well, I wanna get rid of my durability challenges, and I wanna lower the cost by taking advantage of somebody else's economies of scale. 
So we're going to talk about how to do that. AWS Storage Gateway enables cloud storage on-premises as part of the AWS platform natively. And it gives you native access to industry standard protocols for file, block, and tape. All the data that you write to it is securely sent to AWS, and then it's durably persisted in S3 and Glacier. All the network traffic to the cloud is secure and optimized, and it's integrated with AWS security and management services. And the best part is it's a fraction of the cost of most partner solutions. One of the challenges with object storage is that it's so simple, most programmers take it for granted that they interact with it using an API. I don't know anybody who's a sysadmin in a traditional IT environment that does that. They all want file access. So that's how we came up with the file gateway. IT professionals who know files have really been lacking good file systems or good tools to interact with uh, objects in S3. So the storage gateway has NFS support now, NFS version 3 and 4.1. Every byte that you write to it will end up in S3 completely unmolested. It is exactly as you put it in. A hierarchical file system tree will end up being a hierarchical key tree. So this is ideal for applications that can't be modified to use object protocols, or if in your environments you have maybe some hardware devices that expect POSIX, this can be used for those as well. So everything you see in the file system is exactly how it ends up in S3. You can use other AWS services as a result. There's no special library, there's no special appliance to turn on. So the advantage there is you can interact with it as a file system, as an administrator, and if you want to use services inside of AWS that expect objects by using the AWS file gateway, there's no translation that has to be done. Everything's taken care of for you. What if you have data in S3 already? Maybe an application that talks object wrote it there, and you want to interact with it via file. You fire up the file gateway, you point it at the S3 bucket, and voila, you have a file system interface. So I think this is very exciting because there's so much data in S3 that gets archived there. In fact, customers archive data to S3 thinking they'll never need to touch it again. And then it turns out that they do. And then the administrators are scratching their heads saying, well, how do I interact with it now? Do I download it? Do I make my modifications? Then do I just stick it back up in S3? So this solves all of those problems. You turn on the file gateway, you point it at the S3 bucket, and now you have a file system interface. There's probably some people in the room who have questions like, what happens if you have symlinks? What happens when you change permissions? Um, so I'll spend uh, just maybe 10 seconds going over that. Um, a rename is a copy and a delete. A, a change in ownership or mode is a, a new object. Any kind of log trailing application is going to buffer things out. That's going to be a new version of the object if you have versioning turned on, or it's going to replace the object as it flushes the buffer. Uh, sparse files get expanded to zeros. Symlinks become copies. Um, so uh, this is pretty hard to avoid. Uh, but for the vast majority of use cases, uh, I think it's probably going to work OK for most people. So the other thing that we did was we said, well, gosh, what about Snowball? People are using Snowball 
to actually take the data and put it into S3. Snowball runs the same software stack in part that the file gateway does. So what that means is that when you get a Snowball, if you choose to interact with the Snowball as a file system and you write the data in there, when you ship it back to AWS, everything ends up in S3. If you then want to take a look at the data that's in there or interact with it again in the same way that you would as if it originally existed in S3, you, you turn up that file gateway, you point it at the S3 bucket, all of the permissions, all of the modification times, everything is going to be exactly as you left it when it was on the snowball. The other advantage is that you can actually have your applications, if you do finally modify them to use object storage, you can actually coexist with them. We will reconcile in both directions updates. You can have your file gateway pointed at the S3 bucket. You can have your application pointed at the S3 bucket. Your application makes writes to the bucket or makes changes to existing objects. When you go to that file gateway, and you you want, let's say you want to tail a file, for example, that was written by an app, you can tail that object. It's going to go out and it's going to fetch it if it doesn't have the latest copy of it. But you're going to see it in real time. It's eventually consistent, so you try it once, it may fail, but try it again, it'll work. And the best thing that I've heard uh, sysadmins uh, tout about it is that they don't have to worry about rewriting all their scripts. They can use all their scripts that were file system based um, and they don't have to worry that uh, they're going to have to rewrite them in something that they don't know. Uh, so the next way you can deploy the storage gateway is uh, with a volume. So this is the uh, traditional way that storage gateway provided storage to customers. Um, gateway stored volumes are ideal for disaster recovery or offsite backups of your existing storage. Applications like databases, computational workloads, they work pretty well actually with, uh, with gateway volumes because it gives you low latency access to the critical and hot working data set. Um, if your data set is constantly changing, that's very, very handy. Uh, all the data is stored on premises as well as in the cloud. So if you're using it for a backup and you want to keep 30 days of storage on your uh, volume uh, that you've provisioned from Storage Gateway, then that gives you the ability to do restores without having to worry about egress charges from AWS, something that everybody's always concerned about. The last feature of this that is pretty cool is uh, you can take snapshots and then mount those as EBS volumes. So you've got a working data set on an iSCSI volume in Storage Gateway that you're using on-premises. And you say, you know, I've got my volume, it's ready, I want to use it in the cloud now. I've gotten things to the point where I'm ready to provision them. You take a snapshot of the volume. The next thing that happens is that you can provision that snapshot as an EBS volume source. So the EC2 instances that you provision inside of AWS can use the data that was on-premises as the volume without having to worry about volume formats or conversion or any kind, anything like that, right? As long as you have a volume that's um, readable, the file system is readable by the EC2 instance that you're provisioning, everything will work. And then the last way that you can deploy the tape gateway or the, the storage gateway is with a, with a, uh, ET, a VTL volume. So VTL, if you're not aware of it, it's, uh, it's kind of a variant actually of iSCSI. It uses iSCSI in the, in the transfer of things. Um, it's sort of the way to think about uh, Glacier and backups. How can I use them together? If you're using uh, Dell, Microsoft, Veeam, Veritas Net Backup, all of these products have actually had the ability to write to Storage Gateway for a long time. It's just not a very widely touted feature. So what VTL lets you do is it lets you define a virtual shelf 
with virtual tapes inside of it. The size of each virtual tape is the same as an LTO6 drive, so it's like 2.5 terabytes. But you can have 1,500 tapes inside of a VTL shelf. And all of those actually end up in Glacier. So if you're looking for keeping the model of what you were doing with tapes but not actually having the tapes, VTL is a great solution for that. And then I think, honestly, the, the absolute best part about Storage Gateway is the cost. There's no expensive investments that you have to make. Um, even with partner solutions, uh, they can't really meet the price point that, that Storage Gateway has. Um, so a lot of people use Storage Gateway as they're getting their feet wet when it comes to backups in the cloud. And I would encourage you to do the same. Unless there's some special feature that you know you need, uh, Storage Gateway is probably a great place to start. So the next one we'll talk about is uh, the NetApp Cloud Gateway. Now, what's different about this is that it was actually one of the first ones, but it was designed to accelerate storage uh, for backup purposes. It wasn't just designed to be a cloud gateway. It was designed to actually accelerate it. So as a result, it supports SMB as well as NFS. So if you're looking for SIFs, this is where you're going to find it. Uh, it has a hardware appliance option, not just a virtual appliance option. Um, there's a couple reasons why customers sometimes choose the hardware appliances over the software appliances. Um, the first one is if your hot data set is really large or you have a lot of encryption going on, um, having a custom-built piece of hardware is a great way to deal with that. Um, and I would say that uh, uh, the other is just the size of the data set. You can keep adding shelves to this. When you deploy Storage Gateway, you actually it's a, it's a virtual machine. You have to provide the hardware for it. Um, some people would prefer to just pay a vendor. Totally get that. Not a big deal. So how do you get it? Uh, well, this is a little subtle, actually. Um, if you want to get the software version, you're going to get it from the AWS Marketplace. Uh, when you deploy the storage gateway, you just go through the AWS console and literally walk through a wizard that takes you through all the steps to deploy it. If you want to get the AltaVault, you have to go through the AWS Marketplace, which means that there's going to be an hourly fee or bring your own license type situation. I think the number one reason that people use NetApp AltaVault is if they're concerned about things like, I've got so much data, but I really want to use the internet to move it into the cloud, what about dedupe? I know I've got 10,000 virtual machines that are going to compress down into four. I really need dedupe. What can I do? So uh, NetApp AltaVault supports natively doing a, a pretty sophisticated dedupe. People are very happy in general um, with the uh, performance. It's, uh, they, they talk about it as uh, inline deduplication, supports in, uh, compression and encryption as well. Um, depending on your circumstances, you might find that actually paying a premium for this third-party product uh, allows you to save on more expensive elements, uh, like a faster internet connection. I'll talk about some alternatives to NetApp AltaVault dedupe uh, in the next few slides. Um, so this is an example architecture of uh, Commvault Simpana talking to the cloud. Most of this should look pretty familiar to you if you're familiar with enterprise backup suites. At the center of it all, there's a master server, uh, and there's protected endpoints that execute um, uh, with via agent software policies on backup data sets. They talk to the master. They get new sets of policies, media agent locations, that kind of thing. But what's new with the cloud is that in Simpana, you create a, a new library that's called a cloud storage library, and that actually invokes under the covers the Commvault Simpana cloud connector. Um, allowing you to upload uh, your backup data sets to S3. So then Commvault took it a step further, and they integrated with our lifecycle policy feature, allowing you to use uh, their backup policies uh, to tier data using S3's native feature of lifecycle policy migration. We have a few different tiering options. Uh, there's S3 standard, there's S3 infrequently accessed, uh, and then there's Glacier. So we'll talk about that uh, as well, um, how you can 
get cost savings without actually changing the way you use uh, the services. It's pretty similar when you look at it for Veritas. Um, it's almost identical, actually. The only difference is the, a lot of the nomenclature. Um, in that backup parlance, the agents send their backup data to media servers, not uh, media agents, um, which have policies indicating that the data be placed on a cloud storage disk pool as opposed to a cloud storage library. Um, and that invokes under the covers the net backup agent uh, to send it to S3. Now, <clears throat> net backup doesn't natively write to S3 and frequent access, and it doesn't natively write to Glacier. But there is a solution for that. You can bolt it on with a product called StoreReduce. StoreReduce does for object storage what data domain did for file. Like 30x, 40x dedupe. It's without a doubt the most sophisticated object dedupe system out there. And the CTOs in the audience. <laughs> so what's great about it actually is it talks S3. So they've done the work with folks like Veritas so that when you tell Veritas Net Backup you want to go to the cloud, you pull down a list of platforms and StoreReduce is there. So you configure StoreReduce to talk to S3 and you configure Net Backup to talk to StoreReduce. So with the cost of object storage being so low, when you look at how much data you have, you might be thinking, well, it's not that low. If you apply a 30x or 40x dedupe factor though, now it starts to get pretty reasonable. So StoreReduce um, has a couple of other interesting features. Um, one of the greatest features, I think, actually, is uh, it'll do catalog uh, replication for you, but it'll also um, persist its index in the cloud. So if something happens to the box that you're running StoreReduce on, no big deal. You fire up another copy, it's basically stateless, uh, and it'll pull down uh, the last state from, from S3. And the other cool feature is that it has uh, read replicas. So if you have the desire to write to it with your sort of, we'll call it your, your, your backup system of record, but you want to be able to uh, populate development environments or QA environments, or you want to be able to restore, and you want to be able to do that in a scale-out fashion for disaster recovery purposes, you can populate lots of store-reduced re read replicas, and each one of those replicas will, will give you wire speed. Um, uh, inside of EC2, the last test I saw was over 9 gigabits per second on a 10 gigabit link. Um, so very, very efficient software. So in this architecture, you start StoreReduce, you tell NetBackup to send all of its objects to StoreReduce, um, and then StoreReduce deduplicates it, compresses it, sends it up to S3. Um, StoreReduce supports natively using the lifecycle policies to tier data to S3 and frequent access and Glacier. Um, this is the only way to make NetBackup use Glacier. So if you have net backup and you want to use Glacier, I highly recommend checking out StoreReduce. You can do the same thing, by the way, with Commvault Simpana if you want to. Um, if you want to turn off the native Commvault uh, deduplication, um, sometimes people have uh, fragmentation issues with backup streams. Their stores become really, really slow. Maybe you want to offload the uh, CPU workload um, to another set of systems. Uh, using StoreReduce to do that is a, is a great solution as well. So both the Commvault and Veritas cloud connectors can achieve pretty high levels of performance. Um, it's not uncommon for even really large organizations with uh, many, many thousands of backup jobs that need to complete from Friday night to, to Sunday night um, to only have you know, maybe four media servers. Um, I would like to believe that this is because this software was written in a time when CPU and memory were not as uh, ubiquitous as they are today. Um, but. Uh, I find that uh, when people deploy to AWS, they kind of do it in a number of different ways. Everybody deploys from on-premises into the cloud. But when it comes to actually protecting their EC2 workloads, 
they often ask that question, can I do the same thing in the cloud? Not just run my enterprise backup suite on-premises and back it up to the cloud, but can I actually protect my individual agents? And the answer is emphatically yes. There's nothing to stop you from running media agents in the cloud, part of your backup infrastructure. Um, this is how a number of companies that have many, many hundreds of sites worldwide and need to complete somewhere between six and 7,000 jobs on the weekend uh, for all of their different servers and workstations worldwide are doing it. They're actually putting their media agents in the cloud. They're putting them on not necessarily beefy instances. Sometimes you can just deploy more of them. Uh, and then those instances are actually keeping the backup job contents on EBS and then using their policies to tear them off to S3. It actually works. So similarly, here's the NetBackup architecture. Now recall that um, on its own, NetBackup does not support deduplication to uh, cloud storage disk pools. If you want that, go with store reduce. If you want to be able to use S3 infrequent access or Glacier, using NetBackup in combination with store reduce is the way to go. I'm, I'm mentioning this several times because it always is a question after the fact. Now once the data is in the cloud, how do you recover it? The recovery options actually really start to open up once you get the data in the cloud. Image format conversion during the restore process. High bandwidth links to S3. These are all things that you can accomplish when you're in the cloud. When you're outside the cloud, you're limited by whatever your transit bandwidth is. But when you're in the cloud, you have very, very close proximity access to S3 endpoints. And that means that entire data centers can be restored into EC2 if you've been backing them up into S3. All you have to do is extend that backup infrastructure into AWS, another great reason to run your uh, media agents and a uh, duplicate catalog server uh, inside of, of, of EC2. So catalog distribution, alternate masters, on-demand media servers. You don't have to run your media server all the time, but make sure you have an AMI that's there so that you can turn it up when you need it. And the reason I mentioned the catalog distribution is uh, it's one of the things that backup administrators often forget about because it's, you know, it's not something that they do all the time and it's not something that often gets automated. Uh, but if you have a real catastrophe without that catalog, all the backup data is worthless. I've been there. I don't know about you guys. So now we're going to talk about something called Active Archive. Um, we apply this term to data sets that are too large for your internet connection. And in a situation like that, we have ingest services to help. So we call uh, this Active Archive use case Active Archive because it includes both large-scale ingestion services, but it also includes lifecycle policy management. We assume that you're not just archiving it. We assume that it's organic. It's a, it's a, it's a flow. It's going to start in one tier. It's going to move to the next tier. It's going to move to the next tier, et cetera. We'll also talk about um, what to do with regulatory compliance issues. Just out of curiosity, maybe a show of hands, who has regulatory compliance issues to deal with? So like half of you. Okay, that's cool. So you've probably seen this before. Uh, this is uh, uh, Snowball, and Snowball Edge actually doesn't have an e-ink reader on it. It has um, or e-ink display. It has a, a, a Fire tablet. Um, so we introduced Snowball uh, late in 2015, and we started out um, with it uh, being uh, 50 terabytes, and then in spring of 2016, we upgraded it to 80 terabytes. And at reInvent this week, we upgraded it to 100 terabytes. It just turns out that there's all this storage we can put in stuff. It's really great. Uh, so it was the first really petabyte scale uh, data transfer service um, that was using Amazon-provided storage services. I don't know if you remember, there used to be this thing called import-export disk, but the problem was is that you had to buy the disks and send them in. 
So it was horribly problematic. What file system are you using? Oh, there's file system corruption. So what we did is we said, let's make this simple. We're going to build the hardware. It's ruggedized, 8.5 Gs. We pass out somewhere around there. We're going to give it um, all the usual network adapters. It has two SFP plus slots. And if you go out to the, the booth area, you'll, you, can, um, you can take a look at it. Uh, if I'm there, I'll let you pick it up and throw it down. Um, just don't hit anybody. It's really heavy. Um, so when we, uh, when we went to do this, we, we said, well, what's the, what's the real problem with shipping things around? The problem is actually the shipping part. So the e-ink reader and the, the tablet they actually update automatically about where they're supposed to go. So when you get it, it looks just like that. All the panels are closed, though. It's water resistant. It's dust resistant. So you don't have to worry about cardboard. Your data center doesn't have to worry about nagging you about cardboard. And when you're ready to send it back, the e-ink reader will automatically update. So with Snowball, you get a highly secure, shippable, ruggedized NAS device. So it runs NFS, it has an S3 API, and we have a suite of uh, CLI tools that will allow you to send data to it as well. One thing of note is that um, there's no data on the Snowball appliance that hasn't been encrypted. And what I mean by that is uh, all the encryption is forced to happen. Uh, we want it to be tamper-proof. We actually bothered to put in a TPM module. So there's a dedicated hardware sensor to make sure that nothing's been tampered with. Uh, we believe that uh, as part of uh, one of our tenets, which is customer obsession, uh, privacy is, is at the utmost. So as I mentioned, it'll survive 8.5 Gs of force. Just to tell you how much that is, that's somebody tossing it off of a second story window. So how fast is it? Well, since we upgraded it to 100 terabytes, I've upgraded this table. Um, as the density of the Snowball appliance continues to increase, these numbers start to get more and more ridiculous. Uh, when it was just 50 terabytes, the numbers weren't as impressive. But now that it's 100 terabytes, and since we have clusters of Snowball Edge devices in the 500 terabyte range, now the numbers look really, really silly. Um, I don't know about you guys what your internet transit uh, connections are like, but um, I would guess that maybe one of you has a 10 gigabit connection. Maybe nobody. I don't know. Who has a 10? Do you have a 10? One guy, two guys, three guys. All right, that's more than I thought. But that's still not very many. So most guys have a gig or less, or maybe you have a bonded pair of gigs or a series of them. So one of the great ways that people use Snowball is they actually seed the data. So let's say you have Cobalt Simpana. Cobalt Simpana knows how to talk to Snowball. You can actually write your backup data or move your backup data with a policy to the Snowball device, send it in, it ends up in S3, and then you tell your media server to go look at what's in S3, it reconciles the catalog changes, and now knows that the media is up in the cloud. Now it can delete the old copy that's on-premises. Since we announced uh, S3 support uh, for the Snowball device, we'll have a lot of fast followers there, a lot of um, S3 connectors for all of those major enterprise backup suites are going to start to support Snowball uh, very, very quickly. So using Snowball in parallel or using Snowball in combination with uh, a seed plus incremental uh, is a great way to use it. Um, gives you a baseline, and then you can send those incremental transfers over uh, DX or over the internet. Snowmobile was my favorite thing that we've announced, um, not just because I thought it was a joke when somebody first mentioned it to me, 
um, but also because they actually managed to bring a truck inside of the auditorium. I just think that's really cool. <laughs> so um, the thing that's amazing about this is uh, everything that we did to the snowball device, we did that to snowmobile. The whole container is tamper resistant, waterproof, temperature controlled. There's a um, uh, fairly well-known data center near here that they did some similar things uh, to to their where they where they keep their their gear, um, but we added GPS tracking, we added alarm monitoring, we added 24/7 video surveillance. There's an escort, security escort, while the vehicle's in transit. And just like the snowball device, everything that goes into snowmobile is encrypted. How is it encrypted? 256-bit keys, and it's all managed through KMS. So just like when you order a snowball device, you say, what key do I want to use? I've been asking, but nobody's been telling me how much it costs. They all say, contact your sales rep. So the way the snowmobile was architected is that you can actually transfer at about one terabit per second, which means that you can upload about 100 petabytes in a few weeks, provided that the source systems can actually keep up. And uh, on top of encrypting it, we're automatically compressing it as well. Um, when it's copied, and we generate logs for checksum validation. Um, the logs are available to you as a customer, not just us, um, so you can confirm actually that that 100 petabytes was transferred successfully and you didn't miss anything. <laughs> so it would, uh, wouldn't be great if like the middle part was bad. Um, so again, the cost is uh, sort of dependent on a number of variables. Mostly it's, it's volume. Um, but if you are interested, if you do have uh, you know, a few hundred petabytes that you're thinking about moving things into the cloud with, and you didn't really want to manage um, 100 uh, you know, individual snowball devices, a snowmobile is, is the solution for you. Here's the same table, but it's applied to snowmobile. Um, what I think is pretty amazing about this is that I, all the things that we used to think are fast start to become slow the more you scale things up. If, you, if you're really trying to move 100 petabytes, um, you're going to be waiting a long time. I mean, 37, like on a one gig connection, 37,000 days is like 100 years. Pretty sure your backup data is going to change in that amount of time. So when do you use uh, Snowball Edge, or when do you use Snowmobile for that matter? Cloud migration, disaster recovery, data center migration, and content distribution. Those are the things that we, that's how we categorize things. That's when to use what, right? If you're using uh, content distribution, what do I mean by that? Content distribution is things like, oh, I'm uh, a media company, and I'm working on video files, and the video files are, are terabytes and terabytes. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to transfer it to Snowball. I'm going to ship it back to AWS. It takes one week. Now I'm going to take that same data, and I'm going to put it back on a Snowball, and I'm going to ship it to the next person in the pipeline. Maybe they're going to do... Uh, shading or uh, some kind of compositing. And they need the whole project data. And you have a one gig connection and they have a one gig connection. So if we go back, go back to that table. So if it's 100 terabytes on a one gig connection, it, even if you get to use 75% of the link, it's still going to take you 61 days. So that's two months, as opposed to two weeks if you use Snowball. So content distribution is one of those use cases, actually, that our customers told us about. When we built Snowball, we didn't anticipate that people would use it that way. So we're very excited when people come up with new ways to use the things that we create. Data center decommissioning is, uh, I would say it's probably the most obvious one there, um, especially with Snowmobile. 
uh, disaster recovery is is uh, definitely uh, uh, fits in sort of the, the core competency of it. Um, and cloud migration. Now, with cloud migration, the challenge is you can really, when it comes to, to Snowball, you can really only use it for data sets that don't change. Because if they change, you're then going to have to reconcile things and it starts to get complicated. So if you can identify portions of your workload that are um, fairly stagnant or don't need to be updated frequently, uh, those are data, that's data that would be, um, uh, it would be topical to use the uh, Snowball, Snowball appliance with it. Maybe you don't have enough for Snowball, but you do know that you're going to need it frequently. So we have a service called S3 Transfer Acceleration. So what S3 Transfer Acceleration is, is you can think of it like a WAN accelerator, except there's no special software to use. Other WAN accelerator products like um, Silverpeak would be one. Uh, what's the other one that you buy piecemeal that's got all of the, uh, the fish in it? A riverbed, right. So Riverbed and, uh, and, and Silverpeak. Those are sort of the traditional WAN accelerator products. What this lets you do, though, is it lets you accelerate just S3 by using our edge locations. So our edge locations are the same places where we run Route 53. They're the same places where we run CloudFront for distribution. Except all we've done is we've bypassed the internet by using our links. Uh, I was working with a customer. They were in Chicago. They had a 300 megabit link. By the time they got their data to US East 1, they were working with three megabits per second because they had like 23 transit provider hops between where they were in Chicago on their Comcast link and where they ended up at the S3 endpoint. When we switched them over to S3 transfer acceleration, making absolutely no other changes, they were able to get 285 megabits per second. For them, that's the difference between using the cloud and not using the cloud. So when do you use Snowball versus Transfer Acceleration? Um, what I would say is that if you have an ongoing set of data and you need lower than one week of latency in being able to see that data in S3, that's the time to use the S3 Transfer Acceleration. If one week of latency or more is acceptable to you, then Snowball is, the, is a great, place, great time to use it. If you have more data than what Snowball can handle, uh, that's a great time to look at Snowmobile or multiple Snowballs. If you have more data than you feel like, even with S3 transfer acceleration, you can use with your internet provider, that's the time to use Snowball. So now we're going to talk about tiering a bit. We're going to talk about uh, the different, um, what we call storage classes. So when you use S3, the default object storage class is what we call standard. But we also have this thing called S3 infrequent access. The way to think about S3 infrequent access is, if you use it in such a way that you're reading back 100% of your data every month that you put into it. Imagine you're putting log files in there, or you're putting content in there. It turns out, actually, that as human beings, something like 98% of the data that we create, after 30 days, we don't touch it. Like, look at your computer. What are the files that you go back and read or, or update um, compared with all the data that you've created? So we have a lot of statistics on this from our partners, and what they've all told us is, by and large, most people, after 30 days, they don't update things. Uh, when you're working with programmatically generated data or machine-generated data, uh, it starts to be a little bit different. Um, but the idea is that we wanted to create a pricing tier that was somewhere in between S3 and Glacier. Glacier is actually a separate service from S3, so the characteristics for how you recall data from Glacier are different. But S3 infrequent access is just a different storage class. It is the same service as S3, but it is cheaper, 
with the same characteristics of availability and durability. Now, how cheap is it? Well, even if you use it in the way that you're not supposed to, which is to say that you read back a lot of the data that you're putting in there, it's still 30% cheaper than S3. If you're using it in the way that most people use it, which is to say they use it intentionally, and they don't read back most of their data, it can be substantially uh, cheaper, up to 50% cheaper. So S3 and frequent access, the way to use it is largely to create lifecycle policies. And this is uh, an example of a lifecycle policy. This is a real one, actually. Uh, so it's a log data set that's being transitioned from S3 to Glacier after 30 days, and then it's being automatically deleted 365 days after creation. So if you want to add S3 and frequent access in there, you can. In fact, in the graphic, uh, we have S3 and frequent access in there. So what a lot of people do is they say, well, it's my backup data set, right? Okay, so I'm going to keep 30 days in S3, and then after 30 days, I'm going to keep it in S3 and frequent access. There is, it's going to just transition it with the lifecycle policy. So it's going to change the object storage class from standard to standard underscore IA. Completely, after you apply the, the policy, completely uh, transparent to you. You can see it, but it doesn't change the way you interact with it. So who's using all this stuff? Well, we got a number of logos up here. Um, uh, Huddle uh, deals with a lot of video. Uh, FINRA, a lot, of, a lot of log data there. Um, Illumina is a genomics company. Um, I think uh, Autodesk, uh, you know, the Autodesk does all the, all the modeling. Um, you know, the thing that, to think about is that um, all of these companies started out in the same place that you did at some point which is to say that they were thinking about going to the cloud. The difference between you and them is that they had to sometimes learn how to do things the first time. For example, Illumina pioneered what does it look like to have a gene sequencer, a genome sequencer, talking directly to S3. They used to, it used to just be like a Windows box that wrote out data to a, a, a SIFS chair. And everybody had a bunch of Isilon clusters, and they would then do all of their com uh, computational stuff uh, on using NFS, multi-protocol volume. Today, if you buy an Illumina sequencer with S3 support, it goes directly up into S3, and you can operate it, uh, operate on that data using native AWS services or using uh, genomic software that's being scaled out automatically, much more uh, elastic uh, than what people had before. And actually, as a result, they're literally saving lives. So I've categorized these uh, partners for you to help you in your journey. Um, when we think about storage partner solutions, we think about four use cases. Primary storage, backup and recovery, which we believe is distinct from business continuity, uh, and archive. Um, so these logos should help you. Uh, every single one of these companies has gone through a very rigorous uh, process. Um, their, all of their architectures have been uh, stringently evaluated. Um, we've had very, very um, good loops on feedback where we've helped them make the user experience better. Um, and the vast majority of these are in what we call the APN storage competency. APN is the Amazon Partner Network. It's how we manage our partner ecosystem. I said at the beginning that there's a gap between where our building blocks stop and where customer expectations begin. And if it were not for our partners, there would still be a gap. So partners fill that gap. And that's true not just with Amazon. That's true uh, all over the place. Um, there's a number of people in the room uh, with partner-colored uh, name badges. Uh, if you look at their look at their uh, oh I don't have it on me. Uh, if you look at their uh, their show badge at the bottom, it'll actually say partner. Ask them what their experience has been. It'll, you know, if they've had a positive experience, I bet you a lot of these others have had positive experiences too. 
So at the end of the day, we're trying to accomplish two things with partners. We're trying to give AWS customers more options, more choices. If you were an on-premises customer and you used a product that you really loved, we want you to be able to use that inside of AWS if it makes sense for you. And then the second thing that we want to do is we want to be able to put these choices that these partners have provided. They've, you know, in some cases, some of these companies are 20 years old. NetApp's 23 years old. Who remembers Auspex? Anybody? Okay, one guy, two guys. Auspex never uh, evolved. NetApp has evolved. They said we're not just a hardware company; we're also a software company. So 23 more years from now, when nobody remembers who Auspex was, and I ask who remembers NetApp, I think there'll be a lot more hands. So these partner uh, solutions, the, the, the main goal, of course, is for us to give customers more choices. But as a side effect to that, we're actually uh, finding new customers, people who maybe they couldn't afford an on-premises solution that a partner had. But if they're buying it in a metered capacity and they're not running it all the time, maybe now they can afford it. So we're opening new doors uh, through the partner ecosystem. Uh, I want to point out a few other sessions. Um, some of these sessions might have happened already. I'm, I'm not on the up and up schedule. But you'll be able to watch the videos on YouTube. Um, these are all things that I think would be uh, related to things that you guys might want to know. In particular, the last one. Uh, it's put on by a guy named Henry Zhang. He's a senior product manager for Glacier. He knows more about compliance in his little finger than I do in my whole body, uh, which is quite large. Um, so his uh, strategic planning for long-term data archiving with Amazon Glacier, very, very good talk. So if you, about half the room said you have compliance uh, challenges or you have compliance things that affect your work, I uh, would definitely recommend checking out that storage track. I want to also talk about office hours. So if you go down to the main floor, we have a booth there. We have a storage booth. The people that you have access to during reInvent, it's almost impossible, even for AWS internal people, to get a hold of these guys the rest of the year. It's a very rare opportunity for you to talk to the people who actually build these things. Um, the person who built the, uh, who's the GM actually for Storage Gateway is going to be there. Um, the, uh, I believe, uh, actually the VP of all of AWS storage is going to be there as well. He's a former CIO of the Pentagon. He knows a little something about um, dealing with, with uh, storage and long-term issues. So check that out. Um, all throughout the, uh, the show, they're going to be there. Um, we're, you know, it's, it's the big booth, big AWS booth. It's in the middle. And then lastly, uh, please complete your evaluations. Um, I want to open the floor. We have about seven minutes left to Q&A. We actually have a microphone uh, in the center if I can't hear you or if you want other people to be able to hear your question. Does anybody have any questions that they'd like to go over?